what does it mean to have those four generations and to be having big cultural conversations about the Me Too movement and gender equity, about racial justice, and what does that look like inside our organizations? Welcome to the Be Change Podcast. We're your hosts, Warren Goldstein-Gelb and Marcy Goldstein-Gelb. This podcast is for leaders and emerging leaders who care about social change and about how to make a great difference in the world. The podcast explores strategies, tools, and stories to help you strengthen your social change and nonprofit leadership skills. Well, Anna Polanco, it is such a pleasure to have you on the Be Change podcast. Thank you for having me. It's wonderful. And I was especially excited when I first met you and I saw your background as a certified professional coach, organizational development strategist, and in particular, working with the types of social justice organizations that are really seeking to strengthen their impact and their missions, both inside and out. It seemed like a perfect match for the podcast. Absolutely. There's just so much change happening all over the world. And it's it's funny as you as you introduce me, I'm like, would I still introduce myself that way? Um, and so the both the environment is changing so quickly, and literally our roles are changing as the environment changes. Absolutely. And Before you sort of branched off to offer your experience to social justice organizations, you were enmeshed in a whole bunch of organizations. I see Amnesty International, Unite Here, the International Union, the AFL-CIO's Labor Council for Latin American Advancement. So you've certainly seen, not referring to any individual organization you were part of, but sort of the good, bad, and the the sausage making of, of organizations. And so I'm sure you're thinking about that a lot in your role of supporting other organizations. Absolutely. You know, uh, before I began doing what I am these days calling culture change work, I, I think I was already on that path. You know, when I first began my career and my trajectory doing social justice work, which really began at the AFL-CIO through their, what they call their constituency groups, which you know are really, for those that don't know, organizations that were formed out of a, a need and, and I think a desire to be responsive to the needs of specific constituency-specific communities. And the Labor Council for Latin American Advancement was certainly one of those. And you know the beauty of that was that I got to really learn about Um, so many different unions by standing in an organization that was really trying to identify and communicate the voice of Latino workers and immigrant workers. And um, I also got to learn about what is this very large behemoth (laughs) called the AFL-CIO and what is it trying to do in the world and what does it take to do that? And, you know, since then, you know, I've had the pleasure of working at um, many places. And I think all these experiences, whether they're at 
inside the labor movement or, you know, at a human rights organization like Amnesty International, we're really just facing this big existential layered crisis. (laughs) It's like, who are we? You know, we have four generations in the workplace, which is like really never happened before. And so what does it mean to have those four generations and to be having big cultural conversations about the Me Too movement and gender equity, about racial justice and what does that look like inside our organizations, and also about what what constitutes effective work and collaborative work, right? So all these conversations are trying to happen at the same time. And like never before, we have this like really tremendous skills gap um, between one generation and the next in terms of communication, um, our understanding of the world and the, the environment that we're in. And so it's just proving to be, you know, a real massive hurdle for us to cross. And we'll probably be here for some time. Well, that is kind of mind boggling. What you just said, <laughs> I have never thought of, of this whole, you know, the fact that we have these four generations. I, I, I hadn't thought about it. And yet I just recently had a conversation with a, f- a friend of mine who had come out to her father. This isn't a workplace thing, but sort of it's, it's telling with gay marriage, sort of showing that things have changed so much and it seems like there's so much more acceptance. And yet there's still these generation gaps in, in something like that. As an example, people are still adjusting to the changes. And so you're saying that just was really a kind of a thunderbolt for me. And it's interesting, right? Like this question of gender identity and sexual orientation um, right along with all the other cultural identity identities that we wear is um, something that historically, both in the law and also in our everyday culture, has been considered outside the workplace, right? There's an invisible line between what things are allowed to be in the workplace and what things aren't. And it's really changing. And I I think it's been changing for some time. And, you know, many generations have been asking for that change. And yet we still struggle with what are the conversations and, and the role of diversity, the role of cultural identity in our workplace. And how do we really honor it um, and recognize that there is no, there really is no wall between what happens inside and outside the workplace, it's all sort of one thing. And how can we open up ourselves to think about it as one space of many spaces inside our community? That's the challenge that many organizations and leaders are facing. And do they have the knowledge and the skill set necessary for them to communicate that change? So Anna, why don't we delve a little bit into this? Give us an example of uh, your work with an organization, some of the challenges or, or, or things that they were striving to do. Sure. 
One that's coming to mind is one I'm working on now. And one of the biggest challenges is large institutions with long histories. You know, on the one hand, the the opportunity at a large institution with a long history is that there's a lot of knowledge and a lot of expertise about whatever it is they're trying to accomplish, their mission, you know, their social justice mission. And at the same time, the way that newer generations that are coming into the workplace think about social change is different and what they're actually literally learning about cultural identity is different. So I think about um, what I was learning about cultural identity when I was in college, you know, in the 90s. And that's radically different than, say, what my goddaughter, who's 19 at the University of Hawaii, is learning about cultural identity and about gender and gender expression, right? So, so just imagine, you know, the two of us coming into a workplace. The knowledge I was given sort of in the university space or even in my community was fairly low around um, gender identity and gender expression. And then all of a sudden, here we are inside a workplace, you know, where myself and someone who, you know, is, has had the benefit of a, a body of knowledge, you know, either through college or through just now the permeation of our conversation around gender expression is is vastly different. And I'm both invited to engage in conversations about how to identify others, like pronouns, right? Which is uh, like mm-hmm. something that we don't really talk about very clearly. Like why, why are these pronouns important, right? And for someone who hasn't had to traverse that road, hasn't had to worry about their pronouns, how they identify, it's, it's really foreign to all of a sudden be asked in the workplace to, to look at that. And so, and then here is this young person, right? With lots of ideas, lots of energy, wants to traverse change and is also asking for this, this level of rec- cultural recognition in the workplace that hadn't existed. And so how do I get these different generations with different levels of knowledge communicating in a way that feels safe, that feels brave, curious, and that really allows them to then together with that new relationship, with that ability to talk to each other really honestly, recognizing that both of them have a, a set of knowledge and skills that is valuable and need to be integrated. And that's that's a different kind of leadership. You know, we've not been called to do that historically. We really were called to engage in hierarchical leadership, you know, which is I follow the person above me, they provide instructions. And I implement the work. And increasingly, because of the complexity of the social justice work we're trying to do, collaboration is growing in importance. And so what I'm finding with the organizations that I'm working with is that they have this older system. Some people are really attached to that older system. 
And it's really scary to let go of that. And on the flip side, younger generations are hungry to make the change and are impatient to wait for the change because they don't have to, because the environment that we're working in, that we call work, is just um, changing right before our eyes. And so they have options, opportunities. And so, you know, these larger institutions are really struggling with retention. Um, How do we retain a diverse community of employees? And then like, if we do retain them, how do we leverage that knowledge and insight when our system is just not built for that? And so that's that's a, a common example Now let's multiply that to all the cultural identities that are sort of invisible, right? We talk about race, we talk about um, language expression. I mean, there's so many things. So what does it mean to have so many of these institutions that have been so critical to our social justice movement have this internalized struggle manifesting right before our eyes at a time where our entire society certainly um, in the U.S., but I think globally, you know, people are asking themselves, is this the way we create change? You know, is there room for me and my unique expression? So (laughs) with that enormous challenge that you have faced when you're brought into a, a large organization with multiple generations and very diverging approaches, Can you give us an example of the process that you take them through to begin to try to bridge this? Because this is a a huge, huge undertaking. And uh, what does it take to do it? Yeah. I mean, I think the first thing is, is to commit, right? To really commit that this is not a change that, you know, we will we will see like all the fruits of it in the next year. You know, it's, it's not a short term change. It's not one and done. And the bar around sharing cultural identity in the workplace is really low. I have a colleague who described it to me as being five feet under the ground And so what does it look like to live values of diversity, equity, and inclusion when the bar like for that is six feet under? One thing is to recruit and bring people in. Another thing is to really think about how you have to change to to allow for that diversity to flourish. And so I really spend a a substantial amount of time really asking those questions about what do you want to accomplish and how committed are you to it so that we can really measure and see the change that that you want to create. And yeah, that really helps ground people in the reality and not sort of come up with generic ideas about what they want to accomplish, but really live their values internally. Let's say you've had some organizations that have 
you know, made this commitment. So where do you go from there? Where do you start? Yeah. The first thing is to re-engage the community that you're working with, getting a bench of information about, you know, how you're doing on these questions of, of equity and inclusion. And that data can really be fruitful to help understand what kinds of relationships you need to build in the organization. And so that bench of data becomes instrumental in helping us to begin to navigate. And it's it's not a solution in and of itself, but like an initial roadmap that helps us then begin thinking about, well, what are the experiments that we can and will run to see the change if the solutions we have in mind actually can take root here. And so for some organizations, that's about, well, we actually need to be more collaborative in our work. And that meshes really well with, you know, advancing values of diversity and inclusion. Because what it does is it forces people to work in teams or in small groups. And in order to do that successfully, we actually need to build deep relationships with each other. So before you go on, in order to make it real for our listeners, give an example of what one organization's findings were and then how they then move to that next step of, of taking that uh, moving forward. Mm-hmm. So one example that comes up fairly often is this question of joy. Uh, and it always surprises me and I don't know why it does, but the surveys that I've run showed that people would like to actually enjoy their work, like get joy out of their work while they're doing it. And I find that that question of joy often has a few different roots. So the first one is like, do we actually celebrate each other and the work while we're doing it? And many organizations don't. You know, organizations that are doing social justice work are really, really closely focused on their external mission, which they should be, and also on, you know, issues that are really hard to navigate, right? Immigration reform is something really hard to navigate, right? Um, Housing reform, uh, advancing um, equitable, safe public housing, right? These are tremendous topics. And so, so how do you find joy in the work? while you're advancing these issues that seem incredibly entrenched, not solvable at times, and what is it that we should celebrate? And so many of the organizations I'm working with are actually looking for specific ways to do that. One way is just at the top of meetings, do we actually celebrate those small wins that we have? I've had some organizations, it's so interesting, when they get a small policy win, they'll do like a a dance party and Mm -hmm. actually say, yeah, you know, like we did that. We we accomplished that. 
Others will find ways to celebrate things that are happening in people's personal lives because they spend so much time at work and, you know, you don't leave your personal life at home. And so what that does, the net effect of increasing joy and celebration in the workplace is creates a positive atmosphere, uh, a space of possibility. It's very difficult to grow things from a negative space. Hmm. It's very difficult to encourage things from a negative space. And so by increasing positivity, joy, celebration, recognition, what we do is we recognize the people around us, but we also create the language and the behavior to match the agility, possibility, change that we need to embrace at this time. I love those small instances because they have a huge impact and they are, they're very contagious. People will get excited and they'll build off of other people's joy with more. So that's one small example I think we need more of. Mm. How does that eventually segue to creating a space where people's identities are also valued and they could express themselves in that way? Mm-hmm. When people feel that a space is open and celebratory and not exclusively operating in the negative, right, or punishing, they're more likely to offer ideas, suggestions, and to explore innovation. In a session that I, with a group I was facilitating with recently, one of the participants offered just a beautiful small intervention. And these little interventions really have a huge impact. You know, we were talking about how to recognize diversity as a value in their team. And she offered that what she does when an issue related to equity and inclusion comes up, she asks herself, what if I took this seriously? Like seriously for 15 minutes, if I just took it seriously, what result might I get? And I think that's directly connected to her way of seeing the world, that she is approaching it from a place of openness from innovation, from creativity. And she recognizes that she doesn't have the whole story, right? That she actually needs the people around her to help fill fill that story in. And so when, when someone comes to her with feedback or with information that maybe contradicts how, what she thinks about the world and how it's organized, she stops and asks herself, wait, what if I took it seriously, right? And, and just allows herself to explore what this person is asking and really gets curious so that she can see if there's a way in which she's engaging in implicit bias, if there's a way in which she might not be seeing the full picture, if there's an opportunity for more, more change, more innovation. Um, as it's needed in relation to whatever the issue is that that's in front of her. 
And I really like that those those kinds of empowering questions really can go a long way in creating open dialogue in the workplace and really moving into action. So what's really interesting about this approach is that it doesn't strike me as top down, but you can picture someone who has done something for decades, who is told you need to accept diversity and what we need to do to make our workplace truly an inclusive one. And your approach is by leaving spaces for people to express themselves, first of all, to, to, to have common joy together. And then within that space, slowly have the confidence and safety to be able to just bring their natural different ideas. Yeah, it's exactly that. And we spend so many hours in the social justice movements that we're a part of talking about the policies and procedures that need to be in place, some of which to keep others safe. Some of us, some of it is to protect the organization from liability. And what gets lost in that is the human component that not everything needs to be solved with a policy or a procedure that it's actually our shared humanity and mutual learning that can take us to new places. And if we could just give people the tools to engage, right, to be curious, give people the permission to talk to each other and ask questions so that they can change their behavior, that that could go a long way and that that could maybe right-size a lot of the problems that we see inside the nonprofit world and inside labor unions. You mentioned the AFL-CIO, which for, for people that aren't familiar, if you could briefly after just say what that is, but you mentioned that they have groups like the Labor Council for Latin American Advancement and others that sort of reflect different stakeholders. And I remember when I first became involved with the labor movement, there was a lot of discussion about, well, should we be having segregated groups or should we be having more integration? Should there be a safe space so that people could come together and really feel that they can articulate their approach to things in in a safe space? So think about the work that you're doing with organizations, be it a nonprofit or a union. What is the role of that sort of stakeholder group? Mm-hmm. Yeah, it's funny because it's it's changed quite a bit from obviously from the time that I was there to today, and um, which is good. You know, it's sort of there are new needs out in the world, and so this is an important question. The AFL-CIO, we'll just start there, is an umbrella organization that, you know, has a number of unions from the public and private sector um, who come together to collaborate across a shared agenda for working people in the United States. And these constituency groups that were historically formed were really spaces where 
Latino communities, women, LGBT communities inside the union could have a space to talk about the issues that matter to them. And those issues were not always central to a contract, so to speak. So, you know, a contract will focus on wages um, and working conditions. There were just a larger set of issues that people were dealing with in their communities that was important to them. There was also a real desire to build a political voice and political power within different communities. And so I think historically, these organizations serve, um, filled a real gap. There was no real diversity at the helm of this sort of very large, powerful umbrella organization for, for decades. And slowly we've seen that change. And it's this question of segregation is that it's a both and constituencies, um, communities, ethnic and racial communities, gender, different gender identities need a space where they can talk about the very specific conditions that they're facing and the challenges that they face as they try to um, share what are the priorities for those communities. That also needs to be expressed inside the AFL-CIO, inside the labor unions, which make up that umbrella. And the richer and the more diverse, the more leaderful our organizations are, the more likely they are to be able to bring communities together to tackle a shared worker agenda. I spend some time now working with networks of both individual leaders and organizational leaders from multiple sectors who are trying to advance change on an issue. And I'm currently working with one um, that is trying to change the economic mobility conversation in New York City, which is very specific. And they're also trying to do it, do it from a racial equity lens. And that specificity came from the network itself. And none of their organizations, the organizations they're a part of, had to change their mission to do that, right? They, they could simply come together under this shared umbrella. And then their job was to build enough trust and relationship with each other that they could find creative ways to collaborate that they wouldn't be able to do normally. Do you use these constituency groups as a tool when you're working with an organization? Um, working groups and caucuses sometimes form when we're doing this work of trying to live our values and changing the culture of an organization. And um, those caucuses can be helpful for people to process the change in a way that's safe and even to think out loud about what is it that they want to communicate to the world or to inside their organization. And, you know, it's, it's safety varies so much from person to person. All you can do is create conditions for safety and communication and bravery but you, you can't force someone to feel safe. 
So the caucuses or working groups for specific constituencies can serve that purpose. I don't know that they need to be permanent. And I think it varies a lot depending on the culture and history of an organization. You know, someone, and again, I'm not going to mention any names, but someone mentioned to me recently that um, within their particular organization, they had formed a women's caucus. And there was a period of time where it was, you know, really played an important role in bringing forward issues of priority to women. And then eventually it became sort of like, almost like the PTA, (laughs) like it became more of a traditional role. And your comment about like really being strategic about what's needed and, and the role that it'll play and who is it serving. Yeah, there's one muscle that I hope more organizations would would learn to build and flex is agility. This cultural revolution we're going through is not going away anytime soon. It will probably surpass both of us in this lifetime as a major challenge that we're facing as a society. And so what does it look like to have agility in the workplace um, and to give people permission to try things and then set them down, right? When they're no longer serving them. I think that's a question I'd want more organizational leaders at every level to ask themselves, um, why are we doing this for how long? And can we, like, do we have permission to put it down and do something else? So you've, you've sort of started to segue into my last question, which is about some of the other tools and concrete tools and strategies that you might offer our listeners who, again, seek to, to lead organizations in ways that are resilient and sustainable inside and out. You've mentioned uh, celebration. You've mentioned agility, and, and in particular, of, of like trying things on, of, of being open, trying different ways of doing things. What are any other tools and strategies that you might suggest organizations and activists consider? Definitely, I would. I mean, I think the first one is, you know, if your organization has a set of values, whether they are formal or informal, ask yourself, how are we living these values with each other? Right. So in our daily work, in our the internal running of the organization, how are we living these values with each other? And that question can take you pretty far. And really looking at each one and saying, well, where are we doing well and where where could we do better? And really asking the people around you and and taking a collective approach instead of a a top-down approach is, is really, really key. And the other one is the people that I get to interview at all of these organizations are amazing. Like they're truly amazing human beings, um, insightful, creative, funny, um, just have a huge history of knowledge and insight and wisdom, not just wisdom, like academic wisdom, but just sort of inherent ancestral wisdom that is not being tapped. And so are there ways that we can rearrange the way that we're working 
so that more of that can come forward. The natural gifts and talents of the people around you can come forward and people can just get permission, like little P permission to lead. Um, and if we can do that, that, that can take us most of the way. Fantastic. And I, I lied about it being the last question because <laughs> when we started, one of the things you said that you had just completed a whole host of interviews and learned some of the insights from people of color, from organizations of color, of what they're striving for, what they need. Can you can you share a little bit about that? Mm-hmm. So I think the the biggest challenge we have right now is a number of people of color, particularly women of color, are being invited to take the helm of a number of social justice organizations. And they are inheriting a lot of structural challenges and financial ones. You know, there are organizations with real financial gaps um, that have been left to sort of their own devices for some time. And so, and we sort of look to, oh, well, we've done it, right? We, we diversified, we got ourselves a person of color at the head of this organization, and now everything will be resolved. Everything will be well. And that's just not the case. I think the thing, there's been a lot written about, you know, what leaders, um, people, persons of color who are leaders in a leadership role, what they're missing, right? Like, they don't have the, the resources, the organizational resources to turn the organizations around quick enough. There's not um, institutional support from boards. What we're not talking about is what are the unique skills and characteristics that these you know, amazing people bring that we could um, really support and celebrate and how do we each become accountable to that process? So it's not just that we hired someone, but it's actually now, okay, we've invited this person into our, our work family. How do we actually um, make space at the table for their voice, for their point of view, for their skill set? That for me is something much deeper. Uh, and it really takes me to my own personal experience as a woman of color, but also as, as someone who identifies as indigenous. And there's an inherent ancestral wisdom that we all have, something that comes down from many generations. And we should just make space to tap into that. Like there are a lot of really powerful, thoughtful leaders coming forward and their, their insight, intuition, wisdom is not fully being expressed. And I think that's because we're still not ready to support change. We're still struggling with how to talk about these cultural changes and, and take it seriously, right? Even just for 15 minutes. So I think my, my hope is that if you're inviting a person of color or just a person who's different 
culturally different than your leadership um, to the helm or even to the executive leadership level that you would ask yourself, okay, if I'm inviting this person to the table, what does it look like to really make room for them? And how do I need to change in that process? And much of the answers um, maybe come from things not at work, right? Our, our sort of knowledge about how we relate to the planet, how we relate to our families, um, how we make room for them. So maybe that's an invitation for, for leaders who are thinking about this question to really step into that and get curious about how they can support those, those individuals. Wonderful. And are you writing up a report from this uh, analysis or where do you go from here? I know. <laughs> I am I am not writing a report, but I will be writing something. Uh, it just keeps unfolding and there's just not enough data out there right now about it. So I hope to be writing something in 2020 about how to how to engage in this kind of mindful support and leadership. Um, yeah. Well, Anna, when you do write about it, they will hear about it on the Be Change podcast. So thank thank you you so much. (laughs) And, uh, I will be, uh, asking for resources because we do, uh, share them with the Be Change audience and just so grateful for your time and your warmth and all of your wisdom. Just really grateful to you. Oh, thank you so much. This has been wonderful and happy to share all the resources I have. (laughs) Thanks for joining us on the Be Change podcast. If you like the show, subscribe on whatever podcast player you are listening on and on our website, b-change.net. Please follow us on Facebook and share with your friends and colleagues. Thanks to our producer, John Consilio, and to our partners, Somerville Community Media, and Boston Free Radio.